We're working our way through Hebrews. We uh, finished, I'm pretty sure we finished Hebrews 7 last Wednesday. Well, not last Wednesday, but the last Wednesday we were here. And uh, we're going to begin on Hebrews 8 this coming Wednesday. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There's 13 verses here I'm going to read. Remember the theme of Hebrews? Who can tell me what the theme of Hebrews is? Remember what it is? Huh? Jesus is better. In a nutshell, that's the summary of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things which we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See, For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteous, to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds. Lord, plant your good word into the good soil of our heart. Bring forth a righteous harvest that your name Father, would be glorified in all the earth. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And the main point, the writer says, Now this is the main point of the things which we are saying. Or this is the principal point of all that has been communicated thus far. Jesus is better. Remember, he's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's a better high priest. In fact, he is the great high priest. And now we see that the writer says that he is such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Jesus is better. He is the minister and the mediator of a better covenant based on better promises. We have such a high priest. 
in the new covenant of the gospel of Christ, we have not lost a high priest. And this is one of the points that is being expressed here because the Jews wanting to go back to Jerusalem, wanting to sacrifice animals in the temple, wanting to acknowledge that priesthood that would take the blood of animals and apply it for the forgiveness of their sins. The writer here says, we have such a high priest, not like the earthly priest. You've not lost a priest through the new covenant. You have gained a great high priest, and you have become part of a priesthood, not based on what tribe you came from, not based on whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, but based on whether you belong to Christ, whether you have been born again of Jesus Christ. Remember, in, in the priesthood under the law, only those who were of the tribe of Levi, only those who were born of Aaron could be in the priesthood. But now in Jesus Christ, any and all who are born again of the Lord Jesus Christ are called a royal priesthood. We are priests. We are kings to our God. This is what John writes in Revelation. It's what we call the priesthood of all believers. So in Christ, who is our true high priest of the true priesthood that has now been revealed, this high priest, such a high priest as we have in Jesus, is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, performing his priestly duties in heaven, not on earth, like the mortal men of old. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This great high priest, Jesus Christ, has not gone behind the earthly veil of the earthly temple, which are both copies of the true. This great high priest, Jesus Christ, has ascended and is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He did not minister in the copy because he is a minister of the true. Jesus never went and ministered in the temple as a priest. He went into the temple as a child dedicated to God as the firstborn. He went into the temple and he taught as a teacher, but he never ministered as a priest in the temple because that temple was just a copy of the true. So imagine this, Jesus, who is the true temple, is in the temple that's a copy, not performing the rituals that a priest would perform in the temple, but, but biding his time and pointing those whom he taught to the true temple, which he was. He's called a minister of the sanctuary. Christ is a minister of the sanctuary, of the holies. Literally, that word sanctuary is literally the word holies. Christ is a minister of the holies, the holy things of the most holy place. The holy things, things, all things that are holy to the Lord. This word translated sanctuary here is the same word that's translated holy of holies. It speaks of that most holy place where the ark was, where the presence of God dwelt. It says Christ is a minister of the sanctuary, of the holies, of the most holy place. Christ has not only entered in and is a minister of all things holy, he is the very one that all of the holies of the tabernacle and of the temple and of the law point us to. He is the point of all of it. He is what all of that is pointing us to and directing us toward. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, a minister of the true tabernacle. The word true there of the true tabernacle implies that there is a tabernacle that is not true. If I said, oh, that's the true one right there, what's understood is, oh, that's the true one. There must be a false one. There must be one that's not true. Well, that's what's implied here. 
The word true implies that there was a tabernacle that was not the true one. Not that it was a false or a counterfeit one, but that it was a copy. It was a replica. It was a type. It was a shadow of the true one. It was a copy pointing us to the true. It was the shadow pointing us to the substance. Who is the substance? Christ is the substance. Christ is called here a minister of the true tabernacle. The true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Jesus Christ is the true tabernacle that the Lord raised up. The tabernacle that God instructed Moses to erect was a copy. So when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, remember when we went through Exodus and they come to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and God gives Moses all the instructions. He gives him the, the, the Ten Commandments, he gives him the law, and he gives Moses all the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. But not only that, about all the furniture that was going to go in the tabernacle. And he gave him the instructions even about what the priests were to wear and how they were to wear it. And all of those things, the writer of Hebrews tells us, all of those things were copies of the true. They weren't the true. They weren't the ultimate thing that God was pointing us to. They were only copies or they were shadows that were directing our attention to the true that was coming. And so Jesus here is called the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, not man. When Moses was given that pattern, it was the children of Israel that built that tabernacle. The Exodus goes on to talk about skilled craftsmen that God gave, and God gave them gifts and abilities to to craft gold and silver and precious stones and to weave, weave fabrics and to make beautiful tapestries, to make beautiful, to glorify the tabernacle of God. And so we see that men raised up that earthly tabernacle that was a copy, that was a shadow of the real that was to come. Now, the writer of Hebrews is giving us the commentary of everything we read in Exodus. This is why it's important for you to read all of your Bible. When you read Exodus and you see God giving instruction to the children of Israel about building the tabernacle and all of those things, then you come to Hebrews. Well, Hebrews gives you the commentary. It, it gives you the understanding of what all that was for. Why did they need a tabernacle? Why did they need all of these things made out of wood but covered in gold? Why did they have to be specific colors and specific images and specific things used at specific times? Well, because all of this was pointing us to a very specific person that would come at a very specific time in history to accomplish a very specific purpose, the salvation of his people. That tabernacle went with Israel in the wilderness, that tabernacle that men raised up. It went with them in their wilderness wandering. It was carried into the land of promise. And it was in use until the first temple was built by Solomon. That tabernacle pointed to Jesus. That first temple built by Solomon was destroyed because of sin. And a second was rebuilt by Ezra and Nehemiah. And that second temple lasted until 70 AD until it was destroyed because The true temple had come, and a copy has never been rebuilt. The true temple was destroyed and raised up three days later. All that was, all that was torn down, all that was destroyed, all of that work that went into Jesus says, I'll tear this down in three days. They said it took 46 years to build this. And yet God tears it all down because all of that was simply a copy pointing us to the true. And when the true came, there was no reason to keep the copy. And that true, that true temple, that true tabernacle is Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. He was raised up not by the hands of men. He was raised up by God. 
So consider the witness of Jesus and the apostles concerning the true temple. John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. So the Jews answered and said to him, they're talking to Jesus. They asked Jesus this question, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus had gone into the temple and he had cleaned it out. And they said, what sign do you show us that you do these things? In other words, what they really were saying, what they really were asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you claiming to be the Messiah? Because only the Messiah would have the authority to do what you've done. So when they asked Jesus this question, by whose authority do you do these things? By what sign do you show us you do these things? They're saying, are you claiming to be the Messiah? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews says, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them what he had said to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. The Jews, the Pharisees, the religious leaders thought he was talking about the temple all around them, the buildings erected and made by the hands of man, but Jesus wasn't talking about a building made by men. Jesus was talking about his own body, that it would be destroyed and in three days he would raise it up again. And the scripture gives us the commentary of what Jesus was really talking about, the temple of his body. And Jesus knew that temple, that earthly temple would be destroyed. And you know what? It didn't bother him. Because it was simply a copy. It was simply a sign pointing to the true that would come. He was and he is the true temple that has come. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Well, that's a good question. Do you know that? Do you know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? That's the Apostle Paul asking the believers the question. Now, Paul didn't write that letter and ask you and, and ask me that question, but God inspired that letter and that question. And so God is asking us today, do you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you know that? And that God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You are holy because you are the temple of God. You're not holy because you made yourself holy. You're not holy because you cleaned yourself up real good and you live a real moral lifestyle. You're holy by the grace of God because God chose to make you his dwelling place. He has made you holy because he has chosen to dwell in you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have the scripture teaching us that Jesus is the temple of God. And we also have the apostle teaching us that we are the temple of God if we belong to Jesus. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 verses 20 and 22, have having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That pictures for us a building, a foundation and a cornerstone. The corner is set so the rest of the building can be built up. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You also, we are all being built together as a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Why? Because we are the temple of God. We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Revelation 21, verse 22. You know, there's a lot of people waiting for the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, thinking that one day they're going to rebuild the third temple. 
And then Jesus is going to come back and Jesus is going to sit in that temple and oversee animal sacrifices. I don't know very many more doctrines that are more heretical than that. That Jesus is going to sit in his temple and oversee the sacrifice of animals that represent what? Because what can the blood of an animal do that the blood of Jesus has not already done? We're better off believing the Bible, not the doctrines of men. So here's what the Bible says, Revelation 21, 22. John, in his revelation of Jesus Christ, in verse 22 of Revelation 21, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. That affirms what John writes in his gospel when he records the words of Jesus, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus is the temple that God has raised up. He is the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Just as God has raised up Jesus, we too are raised up and we will be raised up in him. God raised up Jesus from the dead in resurrection, life, and power. And through faith in Christ, we also, he also has raised us up spiritually, and he will raise us up physically. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When you're baptized into Christ, you're baptized into his death. And the point of being baptized into his death is so that you can be raised in his life. Jesus doesn't just crucify you and leave you dead. Jesus commands that we be crucified with him so that we can be raised up with him in life. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The only hope we have of being holy, the only hope we have of being the dwelling place of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, is that Christ die for us. Be raised for us and live for us so that we too can die with him and be raised with him in his life. We're not crucified and raised back up in our life. We're crucified. Our old man is put away and we're raised up in the life of Christ. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. You know what happens when you get crucified? You die. Paul could have said, I have died with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. If you have died with Christ, if you have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer you who live. It's Christ who lives in you. That means your life is not your own. So when we talk about giving, giving our time, our talent, our treasure... We're not giving God the things that are ours because we really don't have anything that's ours if we belong to Jesus. If we belong to Jesus, there is nothing we have that is truly ours. It is all His. Everything. He has raised us up spiritually through faith in Him. One day he will raise us up physically in resurrected, glorified bodies. In that day, all creation will know the power of his resurrection with the manifestation of the sons of God. The promise of resurrection, the redemption of our body, is the sure hope we have in Jesus Christ. It is a hope that transcends all the sufferings of this present time. We were saved in this hope and we wait for it with perseverance knowing it will come. As Jesus has been raised up, we shall be raised up with him. So I always tell people, when you think of your salvation, the Bible always talks of salvation in three ways. It talks about it as a past event, a, a current reality, and a future reality. A past event accomplished, completed reality. You are 
saved, you have been saved in Jesus Christ. If you are his, if you have been born again by grace through faith. Your salvation is a done deal, a completed act. There's nothing you can do to add to it, to make it better, to make it more secure. It's what God has already done. Yet the Bible also talks about our salvation is an ongoing, present tense, continuous reality, even unto the saving of the soul. The word soul in Greek is the word suke. It means the seat of the mind, the will, and the emotions. So there's a part of us being saved right now. Not because we're not already saved, but in reality, because we've already been saved. I am being saved. And because I have already been saved and are being saved, I will one day be saved. So think of it this way. God is triune. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are triune beings. We're physical, we're mental, and we're spiritual. The soul, the spirit, the body. When I'm born again, I am spiritually saved. In an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, I mean God makes my spirit brand new, come alive to him, conformed perfectly. He puts his spirit in me now and makes me the temple of the Holy Ghost. And I can't defile God. When God touches me, God's not defiled. I am made holy. This was the difference with Jesus. So under the law, the law says if you touch a woman who has an issue of blood, you become unclean, and you've got to go through a seven-day purification ceremony. But what happened when the woman with the issue of blood touched Jesus? Jesus did not become unclean. The woman became healed. She became clean. This is the difference between an earthly high priest and the great high priest. So when Jesus... When the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us, we don't make the Spirit of God unholy because we're unclean. When the Spirit of God comes to live on the inside of us, He makes us holy because He has now touched us. Not only has He touched us, but He dwells within us, making us holy. That's what happened to you when you were born again, when you were spiritually made brand new. And now out of that reality of being a brand new creation, spiritually conformed to the very life of God and spirit of God, there is a process now by which you are being renewed in your soul or in your mind. Paul says, brothers, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. That is your reasonable act of worship and no longer being conformed to this world, but being transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Your mind is being renewed right now. That is the saving of your soul. That is the sanctification. That is you being conformed to the image of Christ. And if God has begun a good work in you, the promise is He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. But your salvation, your redemption is not ultimately complete just because you are spiritually or in your mind renewed, it will ultimately be complete one day when this mortality puts on immortality and this corruption puts on incorruption. This is where Paul tricked or, or tripped the Greeks up. The Greeks couldn't figure out why God would bother resurrecting physical bodies because to them the physical realm was nothing, knowledge was everything. The spiritual realm was everything. Why would God bother coming in a physical body? Why would God bother being raised in a physical body? Why would God bother raising us up in physical bodies? Yet we see that everything God created is real and tangible. It's, it's solid. Sometimes even as Christians, we think that one day we're going to get to heaven and we're just going to have these, I don't know what we think. We're going to float around on clouds. We're going to have these mystical um, 
things that aren't really real, you know, it's just, I don't know what we think. We're going to live in this realm that's, that, you know, we're not going to have real food, we're not going to have real chairs, we're not going to have real beds, there's not going to be real trees or real flowers or real rivers. No, read your Bible and the Bible shows us that, that we're going to live on an earth that's free from the curse and as beautiful as this earth is today, can you imagine? No, you can't imagine how beautiful it will be one day when the curse is no more, when sin is no more, when death is no more. We're going to live on a real earth, and the joys that we have are more solid than this aluminum pulpit here. It's more solid than the ground you're standing on. What God gives us in Christ is more solid. It's more real than those things. That's why you're going to be raised in a physical body. Listen to Paul's writing in Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope, but if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. He's talking about the resurrection of our bodies. The glorification of our bodies one day. God has promised, and so Jesus has swallowed up our death with his life. We eagerly wait with perseverance for the hope of our full redemption in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus is better. He's a better high priest and a mediator of a better covenant. Jesus is mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. The priest who were of this earth, offered gifts and sacrifices according to the law. They could only serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. But Christ is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, of the things that those before him could only point to. Christ is the substance. Those before him could only point to the substance that was coming. Now Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry. Verse 6, Hebrews 8, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises. The fault of the old has brought the perfection of the new. The writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 7, he says, for if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second because finding fault in them, that's important. It's not that the covenant was flawed. It's not that what God said was flawed. The law wasn't flawed. The covenant wasn't flawed. We are flawed. It's us who are at fault. Because finding fault in them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. The fault of the old was found in the people, because they did not continue in his covenant, and God disregarded them. Therefore, the change that had to come due to the fault found was in man, not in God. Man is not capable of fulfilling the covenant. So God sent a man who would fulfill it and establish a better covenant with better promises. Jesus Christ is that man. He is the perfection God demanded, and he is the perfection that God supplied for that demand. God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. 
verses 8 through 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. So think of this. Under the old, God put in their hands laws written on tablets of stone. Now in Christ, under the new, God has put his law in our mind written on our hearts. This pictures for us the new heart and the renewed mind that we have in Jesus Christ. Under the old Israel declared to God, we will be your people and you shall be our God. Now in Christ, under the new covenant, God declares, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Under the old Israel made a promise to God they could not keep. Now in the new, God makes a promise to us that he cannot break. This pictures the grace of God doing for us what we cannot, what we could never do for ourselves. Man cannot impart what only God can reveal. Verses 11 and 12, the writer of Hebrews pins these words, None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. This is not to say that we no longer need or require teachers. And while a teacher can teach you about Christ, a teacher cannot give you a revelation of Christ. I can teach you about Christ. I'm doing that right now. I can preach to you about Christ. I'm doing that right now, but I cannot give to you a revelation of Christ. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And this is the beauty of the new covenant. The Spirit of God is no longer only resting upon prophets, kings, and priests. But now, God says, in this new covenant, with the coming of Christ, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. It doesn't matter what tribe you were born of. It doesn't matter what office you, you are given or not given, if you are in Christ, whether you're young or old, male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. God will pour out his spirit upon you and that spirit will give to you the revelation of Christ that no man, no teacher can give to you. What man needs is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which is much more than a teaching about Jesus Christ. A revelation of Christ can only come by the work of the Spirit. And this is why the preaching and the teaching of the gospel is so important. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's not the reasoning of man, but the power of the gospel by the work of the Spirit that breaks through the hard hearts of men. Without a revelation of Christ by the Spirit, teaching about Christ is only information. It is not illumination. The Spirit alone can bring that illumination. But as we continue reading and meditating and praying the Scripture, as we faithfully and consistently do that, as we are in Christ, the Spirit will bring that illumination of the Scripture and the revelation of Christ that we need, and He will bring it exactly when we need it and how we need it and in the measure that we need it. Very often people say to me, well, I have a hard time reading the Bible because I don't understand it. So I get frustrated and I stop reading. And I always tell people, what's most important about you reading the Bible is not what you're getting out of the Bible, but what the Bible is putting into you. It's not your reading of the Bible, it's the Bible's reading of you. It's what the Bible is working in you, not what you're able to take out of it. So keep reading the Bible, and as you do that, regardless of how well or not you understand it, the more you read the Bible, the more you meditate on the Scripture, the more you pray the Scripture, that is like the rain watering 
and softening the ground, and that seed will be implanted there, and God will produce an increase of harvest. That is his promise. And this is why it's so important for you to continue reading and meditating and praying the Scripture as we faithfully and consistently do that, the Spirit will work in us. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, But as it is written, eye is not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. It is by the Spirit that God imparts the revelation and the illumination of Christ. God in his mercy has made provision for our sin. That former generation that the writer of Hebrews speaks about, God disregarded because they did not obey him, because they did not continue in his covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. The writer of Hebrews quotes from Jeremiah, speaking of, the new covenant that God will establish with his people, the fact that God is merciful and remembers our sin and our lawless deeds no more does in no way give us the freedom to continue in sin. In fact, it does just the opposite. It gives us the freedom to reject sin and to walk in his ways. We have this mistaken thought that we choose whether we sin or not. We have this mistaken thought that if we somehow come to Christ that we can choose to go out and sin, and then God is obligated to forgive us. That is not the gospel. That is not the message of the Bible. That is not Christianity. The reality is, before you came to faith in Christ, you could not do anything but sin. Your best work on your best day was sinful before God because it was not done in God. And we, because we ate from the wrong tree in the beginning and we live our lives from the perspective of the knowledge of good and evil, we think if we do good things as defined by the world, as defined by humanity, then we're good people. But that's not how God defines things. That's not how God sees things. If we are not in Christ, it doesn't matter how good our deeds are. We are lost. We are sinful because of the nature of who we are. This is exactly why Jesus said, you must be born again. He didn't say you need to try harder. You need to pray harder. You need to work harder. You need to be more moralistic. You're too immoral. He didn't say that. He didn't say you need to stop watching those movies. You need to stop going to those places. You need to wash your mouth out with soap. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said you must be born again. Do you realize that all those other things I can do? But if I do all of those other things, they get me nothing with God. Because I'm still dead in my sin. Because that's my nature. That's how I'm born. And the only hope I have and the only hope anyone in humanity has is to be born again. And just like you didn't make yourself be born the first time, you can't make yourself be born again. Because if you could, you would take credit for it. Because that's just the nature of man. But once you are born again, you are free now to reject sin. You are free to walk in the ways of God. You could not do that before. Only through a new birth, only through a new creation can you reject sin. And if you count yourself as being born again today, if you count yourself as a follower of Christ, then walk free from your sin. And when you sin, run to Jesus and thank Him for the forgiveness that you had because notice what it says in Hebrews, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. What does that imply? It implies that we're going to be unrighteous. It implies that we're going to sin and we're going to commit lawless deeds. But under the new covenant, what does God say? I will not remember those. Well, what does he remember? He remembers the sacrifice and the shed blood of his son. That's what he remembers. And we should remember that too. Not so that we feel more comfortable sinning, so that we feel uncomfortable sinning. 
because of the price that was paid to set us free from our sin. Under the new covenant, God makes clear that he's not ignoring sin, but he has made provision for our sin through the sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus. Your sins and my sins are not being ignored. They're not being passed over. They have been taken away by the blood of Jesus, by his poured out sacrifice that atoned for our sin and reconciled us to God on the cross. Because of Jesus' sacrifice for sin, God is merciful and He remembers our sin and our lawless deeds no more. Jesus is the great high priest who ever lives to make intercession on our behalf before the throne of grace. What was becoming obsolete and growing old has already vanished away. The last verse of this chapter is somewhat, I believe, giving a hidden message Verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The writer of Hebrews wrote this in the context of his day, looking at what was becoming obsolete and growing old and ready to vanish away. From the words of Jesus recorded for us in Matthew 24, the followers of Jesus knew that the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple was at hand and that the sacrificial system and the ceremonial law was passing away. For with the coming of Jesus, it was made obsolete. And this, thus the language. Thus he says in New Covenant, he has made the first obsolete. That was made obsolete when Jesus was born. And when Jesus was crucified and was buried and was raised up again, not only was it made obsolete, but that old system was passing away, ready to vanish. Today, we look back at what is already obsolete, already old and already vanished away. Today, we look back at what is No more. The temple is no more. The system of sacrifice is no more. And the law with its demands has been eternally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That generation reading that letter from the writer of the Hebrews knew from the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was coming. The followers of Jesus knew that the law only pointed them to Christ. Thus Paul's words in his letter to the Galatians, the law was my tutor, my schoolmaster that took me by the hand and brought me to Jesus. Jesus who is my righteousness. Jesus who is my holiness. Jesus who is my only hope and the only one I must look to for salvation. No animal, no law, no sacrifice in a temple. There is a reason the earthly temple has not been rebuilt. The true tabernacle and the true temple, the Lord Jesus, has already been erected and raised up without hands. There is a reason the system of animal sacrifice was stopped. Because the true Lamb of God that every animal ever sacrificed spoke of has already come and has already offered himself up and shed his blood once for all. The reason those things will never be resumed is because Jesus has come and now is our eternal sacrifice, our eternal high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. The warning given to these Hebrew believers is to look to Jesus, to trust only in Jesus and his atonement for there is forgiveness and redemption in no other name. The warning offered to the Hebrews applies to us today. If we are trusting in anyone or anything other than Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest, our trust is misplaced. So let us look to Jesus, for only in Him will we find true hope, true salvation, and true life. Amen. Let's prepare to come to the table. You don't have to be a member of Christ Fellowship Church, but a member of the body of Christ.
If you're trusting in Jesus, come to this table and take that bread and take that cup. If you're not trusting in Jesus, well, I would love to visit with you about that. God is good. God is graceful. Every week we are reminded of that when we come to this table. Proclaiming his death, proclaiming his body and his blood, even until he comes again. Christian, come to the table. Let's stand. Here's your charge. Like the Hebrews, we are often tempted to look to people, places, or things that are most familiar or most comfortable for us instead of looking to Christ for what we truly need. We often settle to have our wounds dressed but never healed. We justify and become satisfied with treating the symptoms but never getting to the root of the problem. Jesus does not heal our wound lightly. He does not only treat our symptoms. The healing that he brings is full and complete as we surrender to him and his ways. The word of God is not pictured as a band-aid, but as a sharp sword, cutting to the very division of our deepest parts, discerning the very thoughts and intents of our heart. And there is nothing and there is no one that is hidden from him. We must stop looking at the difficulties we face and begin to look to Jesus. We must turn our heart and face him. We must seek for the living word to open our heart and bring the healing that we truly need. Invite the Lord to have his way. We must yield ourselves to him and seek him to bring the healing that is impossible for us to bring to ourselves. Look to Jesus. He is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. Amen.